I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of LiveWire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hey, it's Luke Burbank, and this is Livewire Radio. We're backstage at Revolution Hall in Portland, and we got an amazing show for you coming up. Poet Mindy Nettafee is here. We've also got Scott Poole, music from Mighty Oaks, and this guy, M.K. Asante, the man behind the memoir Buck, which is being turned into a film. This show, M.K., is called Stories to Tell, and you are a memoirist. Do you ever, like, think you're running out of life to talk about and think i got to get out and do some more stuff? Yeah, actually, but I never feel like I'm running out, but I always feel like that's one of my jobs, not just to write, but to live. I'm a professional life liver, you know what I'm saying? Because I have to have something to write about, you know? And so I've never been short on ideas because my life is crazy. Okay, so (laughs) here we are in Portland, Oregon. What does MK Asante do to be a professional liver? I don't know. After this show, who knows what's going to happen? So I might, it might end up, tonight might end up in a memoir. If it goes right. (laughs) Yeah, if it goes right. Or if it goes wrong. That's the beautiful thing about writing memoir. That's a really good point. All right, well, let's try to get wrong out there on stage. From PRI, Public Radio International, it's... Livewire! Recorded in front of a live audience at Revolution Hall in Portland, Oregon, it's Livewire with writer M.K. Asante, poets Mindy Nettafee and Scott Poole, with music from Mighty Oaks, and our fabulous house band. And now, the host of Livewire, who hopes to be played by Regis Philbin in his life story, not a movie, just in his actual life, Luke Burbank! Thank you, Jason Rouse. Thank you, everybody, for coming out to Revolution Hall here in Portland, Oregon. We got a great show for you this hour. Our theme is Stories We Tell. And as a lot of you probably know, uh, yesterday was National Siblings Day on Facebook. (laughs) And as a public radio show, we at Livewire just want to wish you the best and pray that your National Siblings Day was full of the joy and rich tradition (laughs) that we all expect from a holiday that was invented Thursday night at 11.30. (laughs) It was actually a nice thing. It was, people were posting pictures of their siblings. It was very um, sweet. Uh, People were writing stories about their memories of uh, their time with their siblings. I am a fan of anything that creates more of that in the universe because I am one of seven kids. I'm from this huge family, and we have tons and tons of family stories 
that we get together and spin all the time. And they're usually like, do you remember when mom befriended that lady Valerie who lived in the mail truck? And she let her park in front of our house and use the bathroom, which was kind of messed up because there was nine people in our family and we had one bathroom. <laughs> so it was not a situation where we had like more bathrooms than we knew what to do with. It was really the opposite kind of situation. But then two years later, that Valerie lady showed up with a huge, like 10 foot tall rocking horse for some reason, like as a thank you. And then we put it in the driveway and we played on it for 10 years. So that pretty much made up for the bathroom thing. Those are the kinds of stories that we get together and, and reminisce over. Most of the stories in my family have to do with the schemes that my mom would pull. I've talked on this show a lot about that, like my mom would freeze milk when it was about to expire, and then she would thaw it out in a waiting pool <laughs> overnight, um, sometimes successfully, sometimes not. There was a coffee cart um, at a mall near our house and the coffee cart had this kind of weird promotion where they sold these little chocolates for 25 cents, and each chocolate had a picture of an endangered animal in it. And each day, they would decide on an animal like panda, and if you bought a chocolate and had a picture of a panda in it, you got your coffee for free. But what my mom figured out was that there was only like five different kinds of pictures, so she just bought like a load of endangered animal chocolates so that she had one of everything. And so she would hang out at the end of the mall by the Sabaro pizza and send one of us kids to do recon up to the coffee cart to find out what animal was that day. And then we would tell her and then she would saunter down coolly with the like appropriate panda chocolate and get her free coffee. And the problem was she had to send a different kid every day because they were going to get wise, which I think is part of why she had so many kids <laughs> for the scams and also because of being terrible at birth control, um, her and my dad. My dad was the first human to win the Breeders' Cup. It's in, actually, if you look, it's in a book somewhere. Um, when I was a kid, I did not like these kinds of situations. I felt like my life was always about to veer out of control. I felt like my mom was always pulling these weird stunts. But here's what I've realized as an adult. All of the best stories start off with something going mildly terrible at the beginning. No one's ever told a great story that ended with, and so everything turned out pretty much the way we expected. <laughs> That's never been the end of a successful story. So what I do now in my life when things are going weird, when I'm having to improv, when I'm trying to figure stuff out, I just, I console myself by thinking, maybe this is the beginning of an amazing story I'll tell someday. Maybe even on National Siblings Day next year. <laughs> Unless they've invented a better internet holiday before then, which I'm sure they probably will. So, speaking of storytelling, M.K. Asante sure got an interesting one. As a teen, he found himself running the streets of North Philadelphia, with his mother in a mental hospital and his relationship with his father complicated. But MK used a single sheet of paper to start making his way out of, as he calls it, Philadelphia, which, by the way, still ranks extremely low on the list of nicknames embraced by the Philadelphia Chamber of Commerce. <laughs> the memoir he wrote about it is called Buck, which after a trip to Sundance is now being turned into a film. Please welcome MK Asante to Livewire. 
And that's me running through the airport, shuffle on the plane. I'll be like, dear Lord, let me make it. Give me one more chance. No biggie, first class in my sweatpants. Professor, first class in my sweatpants. Smelling louder than 10X than amps. <laughs> and you know just what I'm talking about. I took that road less travel. Yeah, that's my route. And yeah, I hear you, but what the other you talking about? And if we have a running, I'll make you walk it out. Young buck into the game, chalk it out. We here now, been building for years now. I mastered myself running to a fear now. I went from never heard of to it's been a while. Now they all on my tip like a black and mouth. Sheesh, but I'm just young, black, free and wild. Coldest winter ever, December child. Night flights, the lights is getting dimmer now. Mind against the window, dome and limbo. Reminiscing all the issues I've been through. Memoir and all the issues I'm into. In the midst of Pulp Fiction, I've been true. Nah, and I ain't trying to offend you. But if I did, then farewell, I bid you. I learned to always keep it moving. Never stay anywhere too long. They say if you drop a frog in boiling water, it'll jump out. But if you drop it in room temp water and slowly heat it up, the frog just sits there and dies. I'm trying to be the frog that gets to jump on the boil. So I'm learning to see as far as possible and at the same time, avoid being seen. Lay in the cut like peroxide. I'm growing eyes that hear and ears that see. I drive around the city looking at the shapes the shadows make on the ground. Against the buildings, on people. Philly is a city of shapes. Out here, everybody has an angle, like geometry. Squares trying to box me in. Octagons trying to stop me. Circles trying to throw me for a loop. Everything on the line. The sooner I catch the angle, the better off I am. What's up, Portland? <laughs> Thank you, man. <laughs> M.K. Asante, ladies and gentlemen. You know, we had Joan Didion rap her book, and uh, <laughs> it was not as good as that. <laughs> not at all. So I hear that you're turning your book, Buck, into an album. How does that work exactly? Basically just um, original music that's all corresponds to the book. So if you've read the book and then you hear the music, you'd be like, oh, my God, because all the references and themes kind of come out. So I wanted to just do something different. You know, you don't usually have soundtracks for books. Nice. I think it sounds pretty good. Uh, you started off with a fairly conventional life, but then your life started to really fall apart as you write about in the book. What, what changed? When did your life start to sort of go off the rails a little bit. Well, I don't think it was ever conventional, but I mean, you know, the book basically... Well, you had parents who, who loved you. Yeah, yeah, and, but, but... Which is something. Yeah, that is something, and that's great. Shout out to my parents who love me. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but, I mean, the book starts when I'm 13, and that's when stuff just gets crazy in my life, you know. Um, brother gets incarcerated, you know, my mom gets in and out of mental hospitals and stuff like that, and just things started to just go downhill, and I found myself in gangs just wilding out, um, everything you don't want your child to do, I was that kid doing it, getting kicked out of every school, which is crazy because now I'm a professor, a tenured professor, and um, you know I got kicked out of every school growing up, you know what I mean? Um, I didn't even think I was going to graduate. So. And what was your life actually like? You talk about wilding out, you talk about gang life. What is it? I think for most people in this audience and who are listening to the radio show, the closest they'll get to that life is watching <laughs> The Wire on Netflix. Well, yeah. Well, well, How does I, it compare to that well, 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 fiction? I, well, I live in Baltimore now, you know what I'm saying? And, um, you know, even The Wire to me is like watered down compared to where really? I'm from and compared to what I see every day, yeah. 
For, I'm surprised to hear that because it's a pretty bleak. It's a pretty bleak picture of, of life mean, in a community like it, that. It, it really is, but you know, we live in bleak times. But there's also hope, you know, and, and that's that's part of what Buck is about. It's about you know, finding your purpose in life. It's about shining that light. You know, I feel like that's part of my journey and part of my purpose is to be that light. You know what I mean for my community. Well, so what changed for you then? What changed for me was the blank page when I had the freedom to to write, you know what I mean? The freedom to express myself. I started to see myself in the blank page. Like, damn, I am a blank page. Every day I can write my own life, my future, my destiny, everything. So I became that blank page. It inspired me. It was an ocean of white alive with possibility. Right, but at one point you're doing drugs, your friend's getting shot, you're in a stupor. Doing drugs? You didn't ever do drugs? I'm just joking with you. Oh, (laughs) jeez. I got worried I read a different book. So, okay, you came out of this, this life that could have very easily have, have, have grabbed you, and it grabbed so many people. What do you think was, was different for you? Was it the support you had? Was it just the way your brain works? How did you escape this gravitational field that a lot of people have a trouble, a hard time escaping? I mean, it was really a combination. Like, for me, this book is about education. My story is about education. Miseducation, re-education, street education, self-education, the difference between school and education, you know what I mean? Because they're different. And I really had an education that was unconventional. People, like, so many people came up to me and taught me things. You know, the whole world is like a university to me. And I've had all these people who aren't, like, real professors, but they became professors in my life. Like, a homeless man one time told me, you know, do you know what soul is? And I said, I don't know, soul train? And he was like, no, soul is the graceful survival against impossible circumstances. What do you tell a a kid who you might come across who's in a a situation like what you were in? Like, because, again, those kids, and you probably heard it a million times from different people, oh, you got to get it together, or you can't go down this road, or, you know, the... I tell them... I tell them on the road to success, many obstacles. I remember when they said it wasn't logical, when they was like, it's really just improbable. Then they told me, my dreams, impossible. But now it seems the ball unstoppable. Buck number one, do the math, untoppable. I'm just warming up, I still got a lot to do. Be in the mirror like, really, who's stopping you? Nobody, from the lobby to the rooftop. Now I influence you. No flu shot. Newton's law of motion mean we don't stop. Acceleration, celebration, we made it. I still remember North Philly, them dirty basements, pavements, blank pages where my pain went. The pavements backstage, we world changing. Live the dream, say grace, amazing. That's what I would tell them. (laughs) Or something like that. You know... I had, like, zero (laughs) rapping professors in college. I would have liked the University of Washington way more if that kind of thing ever actually happened. Okay, so then uh, this this book is now being turned into a film, I understand? Yeah, definitely. How does that come about? That You know, um, the Sundance Institute, Michelle Satter reached out to me and was like, you know, you want to make this into a film? And I was like, definitely. I'd already thought about making this into a movie when I was writing it. So I started working on a script, and I got a Sundance grant to do that. Um, so I've been working on the script, and hopefully uh, I'll finish that real soon, and we'll go into production, and, you know, this will, this will be another language, you know what I mean, for the people who don't want to pick up the book. Do you, <laughs> do you use uh, yourself as playing M.K. Asante, or are you going to cast it? Um, nah, I'm not going to, it's not going to be me, because it this starts when I'm like 13, 14. You could almost pull it off. I know, that's what my You're friends... You're pretty young that, looking. <laughs> That's what all my friends are like. I'm like, yeah, I'm like, I can't be me because it's like it starts when I'm 14. And they're like, 
Yeah, yeah. you look like you're like yeah. 14. Yeah. So, you know, but I'm trying to grow my facial hair, you know. So yeah, it it's not working. <laughs> you're still very young looking. Well, listen, we look forward to seeing the movie when it comes out. M.K. Asante, his book is Buck. Thanks for being yeah, on LiveWire. Appreciate Wire. you. That was M.K. Asante. You're listening to Live Wire, the public radio show with a million stories to tell. All about that one time we were in an airport and saw Jim J. Bullock from Too Close for Comfort. <laughs> Look, we never said they were good stories, you guys. We just said there were a million of them. We'll be right back. Dubuque Monthly, this month in Plano. Your Aurora! You know, for some cities, coming up with an interesting monthly magazine can be a real challenge. But Portland Monthly is lucky enough to celebrate one of America's most vibrant, innovative, and downright freaky cities. Subscribe now for just a dollar an issue at pdxmonthly.com slash livewire. All right, welcome back to LiveWire Radio from PRI. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. Our theme this hour is stories to tell. And now, LiveWire presents little-known stories from history. Tonight's little-known story from history is from Prairie Home Companion host, Garrison Keillor. It was 1964. My college roommate, Norman Krebsbach, invited me to travel with him to Southeast Asia for the summer. So on a warm August day, Norman's father arranged a tour aboard the USS Maddox, a US Navy destroyer on maneuvers in the Gulf of Tonkin. <laughs> the black-crowned night heron flew overhead. Yaw, yaw, it sounded. And the wind was cool on this hot, muggy afternoon. It was on the bridge of the Maddox that I thought I saw what I would swear was a milk dud <laughs> resting there on the enormous console. I'll tell you, I love milk duds. So naturally, I reached out my plump hand for the dud, and while doing so, I depressed the firing button on one of the ship's 155-millimeter guns, spraying the deck of a nearby Vietnamese naval ship. That ship returned fire, and after several hours of back-and-forth action, several Vietnamese ships were destroyed, and America found itself once again at war. <laughs> Sorry about that. I never did figure out if it was a milk dud or not. Milk duds. Caramel, chocolate, Christian, chewy. So good. That was Dave Jorgensen on piano. We call him Schmorgen Jorg. Plays with the Hiawatha boys down at the Potluck every other Thursday. He also plays with the Lake Harriet Jug Band. They play down at Joe Sensors on Fridays. Off 35W there, Joe Sensors. And catch him at the Kent Herbeck Birthday Bash, playing washboards and spoons at the Ludafisk Supper Club. This is Garrison Keillor talking till somebody cuts me off. Sean McGrath, ladies and gentlemen. 
With members from the U.S., Italy, and the U.K. singing three-part harmonies, our musical guest this hour, Mighty Oaks, is like a tiny U.N. of indie folk music. Their first record, Howl, hit the Billboard Top 10 in Germany and Switzerland, and they're currently touring the U.S. Please welcome Mighty Oaks to Livewire. That's Mighty Oaks, right here on Livewire Radio. 
Livewire is brought to you in part by New Belgium Brewing this week, featuring Portage Porter, a warm, toasty porter with chocolate aromas and a deep brown hue that tells the world, yes, I can handle a dark beer because I am a person of substance. <laughs> and yes, that is also chicken wing sauce on my face because I contain multitudes. More information at newbelgiumbrewing.com. Hey, as we record this show, it just so happens to be National Poetry Month, and so we figured we'd have some poets on the show, but not just any poets. We thought we'd start with one whose poetry has been called The Linguistic Orgasm We've All Been Waiting For by Bust Magazine. Mindy Nedefi is the author of The Rise of the Trustfall and Glitter in the Blood, as well as host of The Moth here in Portland. Please welcome Mindy Nedefi to Livewire. This first poem is called uh, What You Saw. They say if 100 people were witnesses to the shootout, there will be 100 different versions of what happened that day. 102 if you count the shooters, which you do, and 104 if you count the guns, which you don't, not yet. If you gather all these stories and weave them together, you will come as close as you can come to seeing what God sees. But the weaving is tricky. You have to memorize the angles of sight. You have to interview each witness separately and learn their life story. Why did witness 35 assume the first shooter started the whole thing? Did he look like the brother she lost? Did the other shooter blink or did she blink when the clouds sifted and the sun flashed briefly? Each telling will be a cumulative telling of a thousand other stories. It would be best if you could start at the beginning, talk to the families of the witnesses in their childhood homes, their first lovers. It would be better still if you could teach them all to play the piano, record and analyze how they approach Beethoven's sonatas or the blues of Memphis Slim, the way music pours out of you. It's a form of lie detector test if there is no such thing as lying. Time itself is another angle distorting everything. If you want to get the whole truth, just keep layering dimension upon dimension. Undo the tapestry when it gets tangled and start over. Use string and feathers and whatever clocks you have on hand. They say every writer has only one story to tell, and they tell it over and over and over, trying to get it right, or not right, perfect, the way God would tell it. If God came out of the cage of your body long enough to draw breath and sing, maybe that's why I'm still here in this growing mountain of paper, furiously taking down accounts. I don't need the notes. It's only important that I take them because I learn through writing things down. For example, I'm writing, don't forget to ask the guns. Important. Now I'll remember. Tomorrow morning, I'll shovel a tunnel through the stacks of pages. I'll start work getting the perspectives of objects. I could just start a fire, burn all the stories to create a pathway out. It would be easier. But then there would be all that smoke. It would obscure the whole scene. I might miss the final, most crucial detail. I might miss the moment that ties this whole thing together with one big bang. Okay, you're going to need to remember all of that. 
You caught that? You have to remember all of that for this next poem, which is based on a true story, and it is called Around the Time I Was Listening to a Lot of David Bowie, I Met a Vampire. Um, can you get a little, a little romance with this? Let's get in the mood. Mm. Oh, yeah. Mm. I'd never met a vampire who was also a minor. It's all about accessing veins, Brad said, and I totally understood. He was really cute and was always sweeping long strands of black hair off his face, and he was really into silver, so I was really into silver since we were in love. I slept all night in his cave, which could have been featured in Architectural Digest, and just before the sun rose, somewhere above ground, he would come home from the silver mines and present me with some new silver trinket, and we would make love like a cat and a declawed cat. <laughs> After a few months, I had a collection of fine starburst-like scars. I also had a silver moon belt, a silver spoon holder, a silver feather headdress, a very large silver bird clock, and several important works of fiction dipped in silver. I grew bored with pale metals. I started to secretly crave green. I dreamt of malachite, alexandrite, amazonite, moldavite, aventurine, tourmaline, savorite garnet, chrysoprase, serpentine, fluorite, jade, and emeralds. Emeralds. I had a very powerful dream one night of swimming in an endless pool of green gems that revealed my longing for a child. I woke up tasting the remembered smell of cut grass. I had to tell Brad. His heart clanked to the floor like an antique mirror. He began to weep, which was unexpected. Then he gathered his large collection of silver horns around him and fell to his knees and screamed at me to go. I wanted to comfort him, and I didn't want to comfort him because he was being so intense and because of all the horns spilling off his lap like a reverse cornucopia. I picked up the plated copy of The Awakening and kissed it instead. I glanced one last time at the moon belt and then walked out into the bright forest night. That was Mindy Netafee right here on Livewire. She's written The Rise of the Trust Fall and also Glitter in the Blood. Our theme this week... We're talking about stories to tell, and of all the stories that you can think of, the ones with the most power to shape our lives might be the ones we heard as children, but not all children's stories hold up that well once you're an adult. Here to talk to us about kids' stories is one of our writers, Alex Falcone, with a segment we're calling, What's Alex All Worked Up About This Time? Hey, Alex. <laughs> hey, Burbank. Uh, okay, so uh, lay these books on me here. Uh, let's start with the top one, The Giving Tree. Yeah, yeah, some noises already. You know what I'm talking about. So The Giving Tree has gotten some flack in recent years. It used to be like the go-to kids' book. It's Shel Silverstein, and it's about 
uh, well, ostensibly it's about uh, uncon- uh, unconditional love, right? Giving all of yourself. But now it's start because the the tree is the metaphor of the parent gives away branches and apples, and eventually when he takes her whole body for a boat, that's, that's over the line. Yeah, he's taking her entire lifeblood so he can float in a lake and drink beer. That is, that's a needy child. That's, that's not helicopter parenting gone to. Yeah, I, that's yeah. like canoe parenting, which is actually worse. <laughs> it's much more you dangerous than your body parenting. into yeah. a canoe. Yeah, so you can parent. Your it's kid. not worth it. So that you, as a kid, you don't get to just take it of me until I die. That seems like a bad message. Actually, and yet it's a book that seems to have informed for a certain generation of parents the idea of what being a parent is. Right? Specifically, let that, your kid murder you. Yeah. Well, or the other reading of it is that it was written to a child that's like, "You're slowly killing me." Just so you know. <laughs> It's about guilt. <laughs> All right, let's check out the, uh, the Rainbow Fish uh, by Marcus Pfister. I'm not familiar, actually, with this uh, particular book. So this has won a bunch of awards for being one. It's one of the most beautifully illustrated ch- children's books. And it's about, uh, it's about the most beautiful fish in the sea. And all of the other fish are real jealous... And so Rainbow Fish... And there's up- one kid looking at the fish from a canoe made out of his mom's <laughs> corpse. That was a beautiful fish. So the fi- what the fish does is the fish ends up giving away one scale to each other fish until everybody is equal, and then that's the happy ending, like they're not jealous of me anymore. And it's, uh, it's, so the main message is don't be special at all, because it'll really bum everybody else out. Well, it's like, if you have some flair, share it. Yeah, well, that, so that's the idea that people think it's like about like sharing. But here's the problem. It's won all these awards for all of the beautiful illustrations, but <laughs> at no point has this author offered to tear one page uh, out of the book to give to every other ugly children's book <laughs> until they're all equal. You're special, Marcus. You have to share now. Um, I, uh, I have not actually read that book, but at the end, what is the rainbow fish, the previously gorgeous, still looks pretty gorgeous. Yep. Yeah, pretty hot uh, for a fish, but um, just the one scale that's still exciting. The one which, bit of bling. Yeah, one bit of bling. Although the other way to think about that is uh, slowly dying because it has no warmth anymore because of all its scales being gone. Yeah. It's really about uh, guilt again and killing the people around you. I'm sensing a theme here, Falcone. Yeah. All right, uh, let's talk about... Uh, this is a, an, another book that... My conception... I have a daughter, but she's 21, and so... I was very aware of what was in the zeitgeist of kids' books and Disney movies and all of that stuff up until about na- 1999 or 2000. Right. So all of this stuff is kind of new to me, but I have seen Goodnight Moon yeah. everywhere. That book seems very boring to me. Is it, am I missing something? Well, the thing that I find mostly creepy and not boring is you may forget that it's actually about a bunny. It's not a child, but the bunny has a pet cat, and pets shouldn't have pets. That's... <laughs> Especially not a pet that will eat you. That is so dangerous for pet bunny. That's like if your pet goldfish had a pet sushi chef. That would be terrifying. There are a lot of really troubling implications about cartoons and children's books. I saw written on Twitter this week that the second that Elmer Fudd figured out that Bugs Bunny could talk and had feelings, and he still tried to kill him, oh, now he he's was a just monster. a monster. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. And also, what about the fact that Mickey Mouse is, he's friends with a Goofy, who's a dog, but then Pluto is his pet, who's also a dog. Yeah, one one dog talks, one dog doesn't talk, is just a dog. (laughs) But that's, again, a mouse holding a dog, like, that dog will kill you. You can't have a pet that's (laughs) higher on the food chain than you. Uh, And then what about... The thing about uh, Love You He was eaten by his pet tiger. (laughs) Can't keep 
dangerous pets. So the thing about uh, about Love You Forever is that it's a mom who sings this lullaby to her kid, and he's like he's a nightmare child. But no matter how bad he is during the day, she cuddles him while he's sleeping, sings this little song about how she'll love him forever. The problem is she keeps it up into his adulthood. So <laughs> when she is very old, near the end of the book, she breaks into his house through the upstairs window. And cuddles him and sings that she'll love him forever. That's a married man. You are, his wife is in bed. If yeah. she wakes up and your mom is singing to you, that's the end of that relationship. That is a deal breaker. As well it should be. That's not a red flag. It's a checkered flag. You've completed that relationship. You can go on now. Uh, what is your takeaway from all of this child story research you've been doing, Alex? I guess two, two takeaways. One is, remember that these are going to be around longer than when they're children. These are also written for them to remember as adults, so you should be you know, very careful. And number two is your pets should not own other pets. That's terrifying. Alex Falcone, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Thank you, guys. Alex Falcone really focusing on the important stuff. In the segment we're calling What's Alex All Worked Up About This Time. Uh, you're listening to Livewire Radio. Hey, if you're going to be in the Portland area, join us for our next live show. It's on April 25th. And see how the public radio sausage gets made here, people. We have Andy Richter from Conan on the show. We also have John Ronson. His new book is So You've Been Publicly Shamed. He's a contributor to This American Life. Also, animator Bill Plimpton will be here. Music from Ivan and Alyosha. And a whole lot more. You can find out more information at Livewire Radio. We will be right back. This podcast is brought to you by ErgoDepot.com, who are not kidding around when it comes to making you healthier. There are healthier ways to sit, and they've got them all. Sit-stand seating, saddle seats, kneeling chairs. If you've got to sit, shouldn't you sit healthier? We sure think so. Find out more by visiting ErgoDepot.com. All right. Welcome back to LiveWire, everybody. My name is Luke Burbank. I'm your host. We're coming to you from Revolution Hall in Portland, and our theme is stories to tell this week, and we couldn't let National Poetry Month go by without hearing from our own house poet, because, yeah, we're a show with a house poet. Scott Poole is here with his take on tonight's theme. Please welcome the author of Hiding from Salesman, Scott Poole to LiveWire. my own theme song. Take that, T.S. Eliot. (laughs) If you tell me you've lost all hope, I've got a story for you. Take this guy who would throw cabbage at people casually and without warning, because no one likes cabbage. He liked to show off. Without warning, he'd nonchalantly carve a cabbage into a skull and set it on your bookshelf, and you wouldn't notice it until your whole house smelled like kimchi. He'd walk around town with a cabbage on his shoulder, taking selfies with it, talking to it, showing it YouTube videos of farming bloopers. And when someone suggested he should show his shoulder cabbage to school children, encouraging them to eat vegetables, he'd say, I'm insane, not a vegetarian. (laughs) He'd say other stupid things, too. Cabbage skin is the closest thing to human skin. And coleslaw is an abomination. 
People throughout the county became slightly amused by his inane ramblings. He developed a little following of enamored vegans. He stopped an armed robbery at the 7-Eleven by expertly chucking a cabbage at the gun. The cabbage stuck to the end of the barrel and the extra weight tipped the gun from the robber's hand. Unfortunately, the shoulder cabbage was killed during the ensuing melee. After that, the shoulder cabbage became a town hero, and a cabbage committee erected a 20-foot-high bronze cabbage in the middle of the town's traffic circle, nicknamed Cubby, Cabbage of Ultimate Bravery Bravado Interference. <laughs> Later, tourists assumed the little town was the cabbage capital of the world, which wasn't even remotely true or good for the tourism industry. The cabbage farmer was so angered he crawled on top of it one night for a little revenge urination, but Cubby, let loose from its moorings, rolled over and rumbled through the Dairy Queen, smashed three cars, and splashed into the town swimming pool covered in blood and hamburgers, which turns out was incredibly good for the tourism industry. The hotel rooms were booked for months with gotcha journalists, and a food cart selling cabbage-flavored ice cream did very well in the footprint of the Dairy Queen. And if you can't derive a bit of hope from that, I don't know what to tell you. Thank you. That's Scott Poole, author of Hiding from Salesman. And this is Livewire Radio. Since we got poetry on the brain and we've got a couple of poets on tonight's show, our own Sean McGrath came up with a little game involving famous poetry and questionable internet translation. Mm-hmm. Right, Sean? That's right. Sean, what happened with this, by the way? This week you were doing some yeah, weird internet I, I, I translating. Yeah, I some, some questionable internet searches this week. So they say that a rose by any other name would smell as sweet, but does that concept extend to poetry when put through five different language translation services. So what I did, I hit like, uh, I took, I don't know, probably the 10, 20, some of the best poetry lines of all time, put them into Google Translate, then Babblefish, then Bing, then some Japanese thing that I couldn't figure out. And then, um, and then I used Yahoo Translator. And what we did was we went through Arabic, Italian, Japanese, French, and then back to English. And so, if anybody has ever tried to hit on someone via email by using one of these language translators because you think you're going to impress them... Oh, crash and burn. You will realize that it yeah. is a terrible way to try to impress somebody. They're not that reliable. So, and we're going to prove that point right now. So we have our, our, our amazing guests here who have um, everything to lose and nothing to gain really in this. We, we have our, our poets who've been on the show already so far, Mindy Netafi and also Scott Poole. So two bona fide poets are going to try to apply their, their uh, brains to this, right? And what are they playing for? So they are playing for, and this, we, this is an amazing collector's item. Um, this is Suzanne Summers' book of poetry. Um, she wrote it in a very um, reflective 1973. It's called Touch Me. And it's uh, the poems of Suzanne Summers. I believe this is the 1980 reprint. Oh, so, yeah. It's still pretty good. They cut out some of the saucy stuff. Yeah. But, um, you know, how about this? Um, houseplants. Houseplants have a way of invading my privacy, mimicking my moods of never leaving me alone. And I wonder how they changed from potted leaves to into... Oh, I can't read this. It's pretty dirty. It gets, it gets really bad. I've yeah. got one but from her. 
come and knock on my door. We've been waiting for you. Yeah, that's from, I guess, her, her, one of her greatest hits. Yeah, definitely. So here's the deal. We're going to read you a line of poetry that has been translated a, a number, number of times, and you've got to tell us what the original line is, okay? So first one to ring in and get quasi 80 90% of it, um, you are going to get the win, going to get the point, and hopefully win this amazing book. So here we go. First one. <clears throat> water, water, all cases not little to the drinking. Water, water... That's a big hint. All cases, not little, to the drinking. There's some, Come on, you guys. There's some grad teachers shaking their heads. Scott. Scott Poole. The wine dark sea. That is incorrect. <laughs> <laughs> nothing, Mindy? Do you even have a water, guess, Netafi? Uh, nothing. Water, water. Somebody in the audience? Audience. And not Did you get that? It was very clear. Water, water everywhere, not a drop to drink. Coleridge, same with Coleridge. Coleridge, rhyme of the ancient mariner. Okay, hopefully okay. number two. I thought two. that was an not, I would not call it a strong start <laughs> for our poets. <laughs> Let's bring one of you guys, guys up here. Shout it out. All right, here we go. To make your love, how to make me count? Oh, pool. Let me count the ways. Uh, please love, begin it. Let me count the ways. Please form your poem in the... <laughs> Form of a, of what a is uh, love? Let me count the ways. Uh, how, no. How do I love thee? Let oh, me count wow. the ways. That's a steal Elizabeth from Elizabeth Barrett Browning. Netafi, for the point. Guys, she wants you to have her. Uh, Suzanne Summers staring longingly at you. Hopefully, you can turn it around here. Um, was once a dark night, as evidenced, weak and tired. Mindy. Don't go gentle into this dark night. Incorrect. Darn it. Can you repeat the question? Was once a dark <laughs> night, as evidenced, weak and tired. Famous Baltimore writer. MK Mike. It's Poe, but John John Waters. It is John Waters, who once wrote <laughs> Once Upon a Midnight Dreary While I Pondered, Weak and Weary, or After Five Language Sites, was once a dark night as evidenced, weak and tired. <laughs> Okay, here's so uh, that's no point for I. Wait, you, uh, uh, Scott said uh, Poe, so he, does he po. get a point? He, he got Poe based like purely on. Two? Name another Baltimore poet. <laughs> Ray Lewis. <laughs> I know that the Baltimore Ravens was named after Poe. There you go. Okay, well, maybe a half point. Okay, uh, so that, if I remember, that means it's one for Mindy to half a point yes. for Scott. Here I'll we take go. it. Come on, Scott. Big finish. I'll um, take it. Before going to the bed that I have promises to hold of the miles. I have miles to go before I sleep. There you go. Nice Robert job. Scott Thomas. Poole. Yeah. Robert Where? Frost. That's a whole point, yeah. I think. <clears throat> it's at least, at least um, a point. Here we go. Comparisons for days of summer. You are so more... Oh. Shall Mindy. I compare thee to a summer's day? You are more fair no, and tempered. No, don't. <laughs> no, that is Shakespeare. Stop. She Shakespeare. has got it. We, Mindy has moved ahead to a commanding lead. Nice. Scott, you're really going to have to nail this last one here. It's Mindy 2, Scott 1.5. Yes. <laughs> and it is love better than ever if you lose. Mindy. It is better to have loved and lost than to have never loved at all. Congratulations. <laughs> wow. You are the owner. This one's for Suzanne. <laughs> Mindy Netafee. 
Our poetry translation champion. Thank you, Mindy Nedefi. Thank you, Scott Poole. And thank you, of course, Sean McGrath. And thank you to the words of Suzanne Summers. All right. One more time, please. Welcome Mighty Oaks to Livewire. As Mighty Oaks here on Live Wire Radio. Well, that was uh, an exciting hour. That was Announcer a big Jason hour. Rouse. That was a big hour. Yeah, geez. We did some uh, poetry translation. We um, what else did we do? We heard there some, was some music. 
There was, uh, yeah, sections of a book uh, were wrapped. That was good. And sung. I love that. Yeah. More so books should be done. We found out about Suzanne Summers' uh, poetry career, which is, I think, underreported. And maybe rightfully so. I did. I am going to leaf through that book. I'm not going to lie to you. What do you think you learned from uh, this hour of Livewire? In this hour, Alex Falcone, what I learned from Alex is that apparently pets should not own other pets. So my pet gerbils pet python homer is officially up for sale um it's 500 dollars obo you can find it at jason's gerbils and tanning um dot org just yeah. contact me oh, there send me a quick message Clackamas? it's we have locations in clackamas gresham mm-hmm. and south fresno okay. if you're so you shouldn't yell for that but that's cool i think what that uh, my big takeaway from the hour was that if you're a white public radio host raised on the mean streets of Seattle, Washington, and one of yeah. your guests starts rapping his answers, yeah. don't try to keep up. Just sit back and enjoy the ride. Absolutely. I'm with you. Yeah. I'm with you. That's one to grow on. Absolutely. Hey, thanks. That's our show this week. We'll see you guys soon. Thank you very much. Our thanks to our guests, M.K. Asante, Mindy Netafee, Scott Poole, and Mighty Oaks. This show is made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, and Ergo Depot. Hotel accommodations generously provided by the Hotel Deluxe. Robin Tenenbaum is the executive producer and co-creator of Livewire. Courtney Hameister is head writer and producer. Jim Brunberg is producer and member of our house band, along with Jonathan Newsom, Dave Jorgensen, and Ned Failey. Jason Rouse is associate producer and part of our writing team, along with Alex Falcone and Sean McGrath. Graham Nystrom is our technical director. House sound by D. Neil Blake. Lighting by Jillian Tabler. Special help this week from Sam Tenenbaum. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council, Meyer Memorial Trust, the Oregon Arts Commission, the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation, the Maybell Clark McDonald Fund, the Oregon Community Foundation, Work for Art, the Multnomah County Cultural Coalition, and listeners like you find people. For more information about our show or how to become a member of LiveWire, visit livewireradio.org. You can download our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, and find us on Twitter and Facebook at LiveWire Radio. I'm Luke Burbank. We'll see you next week. PRI, Public Radio International. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of Livewire delivered right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the Livewire podcast feed and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app and bam, you are Livewire subscribed. And If you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about Livewire. And thank you.